Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Fig- and In our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Zimbabwe's first lady, Grace Mugabe, back in Harare after being accused of assault in South Africa. South Africa's Marikana massacre victims still seek justice five years after mass shooting. And U.S. President Donald Trump says both left and right-wing groups are to blame for the violent clashes in Charlottesville. In sports news, Bafana Bafana third-string squad has been hit by withdrawals. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The number of victims of the deadly mudslide in the capital of Sierra Leone, Freetown, has risen to close to 400. Over 100 more bodies have been pulled from the debris. President Ennis Bai Ikoroma has appealed for urgent support to help his country respond to the overwhelming devastation. The PBC's Omaru Fofana is at a hospital mortuary in Freetown. I've just been inside there. It's full to the brim. The authorities have had to bring out the corpses. I simply just could not count the number of bodies, some of them limbless, lying out there. The authorities say they are completely stretched to the limit and they need all the help they can get. Right now there are men and women dressed in protective clothing, something like hazmat suits, washing the place clean to prepare it for more corpses expected later today. The pathologist here, Dr. Owiskoroma, says this compares to nothing he's seen before and he's been doing this for decades. Kenyan opposition leader Raila Odinga is expected to unveil his next move this Wednesday to contest a presidential poll he claims was rigged in favor of President Uhuru Kenyatta. The 72-year-old cried foul shortly after vote counting began in last Tuesday's election, sparking deadly protests in his strongholds that left at least 17 people dead and 177 injured. Odinga's supporters are waiting to hear if their leader will take his grievances to court as he had been urged to do so or out onto the streets. Initially, his decision had been planned Tuesday. However, he pushed this back by a day, citing the complexity and delicate nature of discussions with his allies in the National Super Alliance Coalition. A woman suicide bomber has killed at least 27 people and wounded schools in northeast Nigeria. Local sources say the woman blew herself up at a crowded market in the village of Konduga near Maiduguri. This area is the epicenter of the conflict between government forces and Boko Haram militants. Witnesses say two suicide bombers also blew themselves up at the gates to a nearby refugee camp with no others killed but many injured. 
Marikana residents in South Africa's northwest province say the Marikana Tragedy Commemoration Day is meaningless as justice has not prevailed against those responsible for the shooting of 34 minors on August 16, 2012. Today marks five years since police shot dead 34 mine workers at Marikana. Members of Mine Workers Union AMCO will converge at the infamous copy at Wonderkop to commemorate the event. Some of the Marikana residents say this day brings only bad memories for them. This day makes me so sad because a lot of people lost their lives. Breadwinners died and left their family members stranded. And finally, Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari's 100-day-long overseas medical trip is stoking tensions in the country as calls grow for him to either return or resign. Buhari has been in London since May the 7th to receive treatment for an undisclosed ailment, appointing Vice President Yemi Osinbajo to act on his behalf. There have been series of rallies in Abuja since August 7 over the long absence of uh, the 74-year-old leader. On Tuesday, a small group of people held protests in Abuja, but were attacked by Buhari supporters. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Amanda. It is 7.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The South African Police Service says no warrant of arrest has been issued against Zimbabwe's First Lady, Grace Mugabe. Mugabe failed to arrive at the Santin police station north of Johannesburg, where she was expected to hand herself over to law enforcement authorities. This after she allegedly assaulted a 20-year-old model, Gabriella Engels, with an extension cord at a Santin hotel on Sunday. Engels has since opened an assault case against Mugabe. Tapopakhane reports. Police Minister Figile Mbalula reportedly told AFP news agency that Grace Mugabe had handed herself over to South African police and was due to appear in court yesterday afternoon. But this was not to be. National Police Spokesperson Vish Naidu says during negotiations with Mugabe's legal team, it was agreed that she will hand herself over to police yesterday morning. However, six hours later, Mugabe had still not set her foot at the Sentin police station. At 10 o'clock, the suspect was supposed to have handed herself over. That was the agreement in the negotiation that that had taken place, but that didn't materialize. The the process of the suspect handing herself over and the investigations, they are two concurrent processes. Should our investigations be finalized before the suspect hand herself over, then we will do what is required of us uh, in terms of the law. Engels laid a charge of assault against Grace Mugabe at the Sentinel police station on Monday. She alleges that Mugabe assaulted her with an extension court while they were alone in the hotel room. Engels had reportedly went to the Capital Hotel in Sentin to meet Mugabe's two sons when the attack took place. She received several stitches, including on her face. As I tried to go away, I had to like crawl in between her legs to get away from her. And that's when she hit me with the plugs end of the extension cord, which then opened my head in three different places. I'm going to have like a really bad scar, like. My modeling career is in ruins right now, so I, I, just thinking about that gets me really emotional because 
I make my money off my looks and she took that for me in a matter of seconds. Naidu says investigations into the matter are at an advanced stage. So our investigations are still continuing. We're hoping to finalize our investigations very soon. We will take the docket to a senior public prosecutor for a decision to be made. That is where we are at at this stage. He says negotiations with Mugabe's legal team were still ongoing and therefore could not say whether they expect Zimbabwe's first lady to hand herself over to authorities anytime soon. I'm Tepo Pahani in Johannesburg. Rescue workers in Sierra Leone say they have retrieved nearly 400 bodies and hundreds more are missing after muddy rubble swept through the regent area near the capital of Freetown. A mass burial of victims is planned to free up space in mortuaries, as the BBC's Umaru Fofana reports. The mountainside collapsed in an avalanche of mud. Families were buried as they slept. The deluge of water surged through streets, leaving total devastation and few survivors. Outside the Freetown mortuary, it's been a difficult day for the emergency services. Hundreds of bodies have been brought here. This is a disaster which, even by the reckoning of the head of this mortuary, who's been doing this for decades, is absolutely unprecedented. He says it compares to nothing with the Ebola virus outbreak. It does not compare to the civil war. He says he has never seen anything like this. Those who did escape look on at the place where they used to live. This man lost eight members of his family. I first saw the body of my sister and called on people to help me and we laid her on the floor. Then I started hearing other people nearby crying. I've lost all of my family. Meanwhile, the rescue operation continues. It's hoped survivors might still be found. It is believed that hundreds of people are lying dead here beneath the mudslide. And the hope is that they will be able to find any one of them alive. Those hopes are fading fast, in part because of the late arrival of the heavy machinery and equipment needed for that initial reaction when this mudslide happened on Monday morning. Many here believe that that help did not come in time. The mudslide and flash floods have shaken this country. People here have already suffered a bloody civil war and a devastating Ebola outbreak. Now thousands have lost everything. That was the BBC's Umaru Fofana reporting from Sierra Leone. Doctors treating a six-month-old girl left in a coma after being allegedly tear-gassed and clubbed by Kenyan police has died. Samantha Pendle was allegedly beaten and tear-gassed by police and violence following last week's presidential election in, in the country, as Christo Johnson of Reuters reports. A six-month-old victim of post-election violence in Kenya. Samantha Pando, left in a coma after being allegedly tear-gassed and clubbed by police, has now died. The baby girl was asleep in her mother's arms when police forced their way into her home, her parents had said earlier. They threw the tear gas inside and it was so smoky and I had a six-month-old baby there. She can't even breathe. The child was like, <clears throat> then that she was rubbing her eyes because of that. One of the guys beat me, then the other one came with that stick of them, hit the baby. Then I let the baby off of my hand because she did not cry. 
I did not I did not feel any movement. The baby and her parents were beaten on Saturday as police swept their neighborhood in the city of Kisumu looking for protesters, residents told Reuters. Kisumu is the stronghold of opposition leader Raila Odinga, who is contesting results from last Tuesday's presidential election. Odinga's accusations of vote rigging have led to protests in Kisumu's and Nairobi's slums. Kenya's police have been accused by residents of using lethal violence. And that was Crystal Johnson of Reuters. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. ANC Secretary-General Gwede Mandashe says they are not going to run the risk of splitting the ANC by removing South Africa's President Jacob Zuma to satisfy their detractors. He was reacting to the outpouring of calls by opposition parties and civil society organizations for the president to step down following the public protector's report on state capture. Last week, President Zuma survived an eighth motion of no confidence in him with 21 votes. Reports indicate that at least over 25 ANC MPs voted with the opposition. Our political correspondent in Debomogobo has more. The ANC says a decision to recall the president of the organization is not a simple matter. Last week, supporters from opposition parties and some civil society organizations took to the streets in support of Zuma's removal. But speaking to the media after the meeting of the governing party's National Working Committee, which discussed the DA's failed attempt to remove the president, Mantasha says the defeat of the motion has uncovered DA leader Musima Imani as someone who wants to lead the country at all costs. Actually, it was quite important that that motion was defeated because it uncovered the uncontrollable desire to be in power of the Democratic Alliance. I think Musima Imani exploded and began to talk about the resolution of parliament. To me, it's not just the resolution of parliament. It's the hurry he is in. He's imagining himself a president of the republic and therefore has this uncontrollable ambition for power. And uh, want to appeal to people like those that every five years here, we're having elections, people must wait for the elections. And the ANC Secretary General says Zuma's removal will not be a solution to the ANC crisis. You think that we must just fire Zuma? If it splits, it must split. It's not your business. And I can tell you, if we do that and it splits, we will fool this bottom more than it is today. And ask us, what kind of a leadership that couldn't see that you're going to split the organization? We are running an organization who go and listen to what structures do. We are not going to take an action that will split the ANC. It may not be the flavor of the day, because the flavor of the day is a march, Zuma must go. It's an ally calling a media briefing, Zuma must go, another ally doing the same. That is the flavor of the day. With some saying the president's continued stay in power will allow the Guptas to continue to benefit illegally from the state, Mantaj says in as much as they are enough with the Guptas, they will choose to keep the stability of the ANC instead of tearing themselves apart because they are angry at that family. What is preferable is that we should not dissolve ourselves because Guptas are stealing. That is what is preferable. We should never dissolve the country and throw the country in an unpredictable situation and drive it into 
a crisis. What we should do is that we should keep the stability of the country as much as we can, because if we are stable and we are there as a country, we can deal with the theft of the Guptas. On reports that close to 30 ANC MPs voted with the opposition to remove the president, Mantashe says there will be no witch hunt against anyone, insisting that action will only be taken against those who publicly said they voted to remove Zuma. Where MPs, after the vote of no confidence, at least three of them have done that, go up and confirm themselves that we voted with the opposition. We'll have to deal with that situation because if we don't, we are going to be destroying the essence of being an organization. But those who just voted with the opposition keep quiet. We're not going to go and smell them around and try to check who they are, how did they do it. We're not going to do that. The reason that we must deal with those who come up and confirm is that when you do that, you go out of your way to undermine the organization. The ANC Secretary-General said they support the party's MPs who refused to attend a portfolio committee meeting in Parliament addressed by the party's outspoken MP Dr. Makozi Koza. You have a protest of MPs who say, no, this behavior is not acceptable. They have a right to say so. In the same way as Makozi Koza has over a period of time justified her right to say anything anywhere to anybody because... One of the issues is that if you become abusive of your powers and responsibility, people can only rescue themselves from you by not just not going to a meeting. If I go to a meeting, it is chaired by Zizi. Every time Zizi chairs the meeting, in his opening remarks, he insults the ANC. As an ANC member, I must have a right to say, constitutional protector of the parliament, but as a member of the ANC, I can't subject myself to your abuse. He says they will go to Parliament next week in a bid to heal divisions that have rocked the ANC caucus. I am Debo Mokobi in Johannesburg. South Africa today remembers the death of 34 miners who were killed during a labor unrest five years ago at a flagship of one of the world's largest platinum mines, Lonmin. Seventy others were injured when police opened fire on them. International Rights Group Amnesty International has called for the wheels of justice to be fast-tracked for the victims and their families. On August 23rd, the country's president, Jacob Zuma, appointed a commission of inquiry to investigate the tragic incident and events leading to it. The commission subsequently recommended a full investigation under the director of public prosecutions with a view to ascertaining the criminal liability of members of the South African Police Service who were involved in the events at Marikana. To date, however, no police officers involved have been prosecuted. Amnesty International's Executive Director Shanila Mohammed tells us more. As you rightly said in your introduction, that, you know, on the 16th of August 2012, 34 minors were shot dead by the police and 70 were injured. Five years later, we are yet to see people who are responsible for the deaths of these minors being brought to justice. And, um, you know, for us, this is really unacceptable. And we are constantly in touch. And, and I was in Marikana recently. Um, and, you know, to see the state of the families, the widows, the people who were affected by that horrible, horrible event um, where justice has not been served, but and yet their lives have also not improved. They still live in unacceptable conditions. You know, they live in, 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 in um, shacks. They don't have water, you know, there's a lot of, of, um, of, of horrible things that, uh, that they were having to endure. And, you know, not knowing 
um, what exactly happened that day and who is to be responsible makes the whole situation even worse for them. And one of your representatives earlier said that the lack of action against those responsible for the killings is politically motivated. Can you elaborate on this? Well, you know, if you look at the way in which things have happened, I mean, you know, as you rightly said, President Zuma uh, set up uh, the Fallen Commission, um, you know, who were supposed to look into exactly what happened. And if you look at the findings of the Fallen Commission, I mean, as you rightly said, you know, the Fallen Commission said that uh, an investigation had to be done. Uh, but one of the other things the Fallen Commission said was that, you know, the police operation on the 16th of August 2012 was triggered by the decision the night before by senior police officers, officials to forcibly disarm and disperse the strikers despite forcing bloodshed. And the Fallen Commission described this decision as reckless and inexplicable and as the decisive cause of the deaths. Um, in May, uh, in March this year, the Police Investigative Directorate, ICAD, um, told Parliament that um, that they had recommended a list of 72 police officers who they've identified for prosecution. And that list includes the former National Police Commissioner, Ria Piega, as well as um, other police officers who were responsible or who were believed to have been responsible. And they recommended that these um, people be charged uh, with charges that would range from murder, assault, to seeking the cause of uh, the ends of justice to perjury. Um, and then in May this year, IPED handed over the dockets to the National Prosecuting Authority. So, you know, May and we're now in August, we still have heard nothing. So, you know, what we're calling for is, you know, for, for the government to, um, to, to take uh, the decision and, and for the National, Pro- National Prosecuting Authority to take the advice of their own internal investigative uh, authority and, um, and, and prosecute those that are responsible. And yes, we feel that one of the stumbling blocks is a lack of political will. Had there been political will, we wouldn't have been waiting five years for this to happen. And the reality is that the poor and marginalized people of South Africa don't have the access to justice in the same way that you know, uh, uh, many other people have. The the wheels of justice turn very slowly and we feel that this is really unacceptable. Mm. And what do you make of the case against the 17 uh, Marikana strike leaders by the NPA? Well, there you go. I mean, there there is your classic example of what we're saying. You know, the fact that um, the miners were then uh, uh, arrested and and charged and, and, and some of them are facing murder charges whereas not one police official has been held to account. You know, that that, indi- that is, is clear evidence of what I'm talking about. You know, clearly, uh, and, and, and we're not for one second saying that the, the people who are responsible for the murders of the two policemen and the security, uh, of, um, the security um, um, officers should not be brought to account. Yes, they should do. Uh, you know, any unlawful killing should be, the people who perpetrated should be held to account. But if you look at, you know, that case versus the fact that 74, I mean, uh, 34 people were killed and a couple, uh, you know, at least 10 uh, in addition to that, in the lead-up to uh, that incident, and nobody has been brought to account. And you mentioned earlier, Shanila, the living conditions of, of, of the families of uh, those miners. Uh, can you tell us about what you witnessed when you visited some of the families in Marukana last month? When um, mining companies are given permission to mine, they they agree to uh, a, a national plan where they basically... Uh, 
say that they are going to deliver some sort of development for the for the people of of the of the community and you know I mean, London was supposed to have, according to their plan, was supposed to have delivered um, 5,500 houses, um, and but you know by 2011. Mm-hmm. But by 2011, they had only um, built three houses, and you know that, for me, I mean that is just you know the fact that they feel that they can get away with it. Um, you know, and that they're not held to account. I mean, the reason they get those mining licenses is because they agree to these development plans. And if they do not deliver on them, then the licenses should be revoked and they should not be allowed to go in there and mine. That was Shanila Mohammed, Executive Director of Amnesty International, on the line speaking to Amanda Machaka. It's 7.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. U.S. President Donald Trump has insisted that both left and right wing groups were to blame for the violent clashes in Charlottesville and Virginia over the weekend. Earlier, Trump had said the Ku Klux Klan White supremacists and other hate groups were repugnant to everything Americans held dear. He added that the mother of the woman killed in the clashes has reached out to him to thank him for how he handled the matter after her daughter's death. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other and they came at each other with clubs and it was vicious and it was horrible and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. Sir, you said there was hatred, there was violence on both sides. Well, I do think there's blame, yes. I think there's blame on both sides. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. And, and, And if you reported it accurately, you would say. The young woman, who I hear is a fantastic young woman, and it was on NBC, her mother wrote me, and said through, I guess, Twitter, social media, the nicest things. And I very much appreciated that. I hear she was a fine, really, actually, an incredible young woman. But her mother on Twitter thanked me for what I said. And honestly, if the press were not fake, and if it was honest, the press would have said what I said was very nice. And that was U.S. President Donald Trump ending that report. South Africa says it will use its tenure as the chair of the SADC Council of Ministers to further the regional developmental agenda. Pretoria took over the reins from Swaziland at the council's meeting yesterday. The two-day meeting is in preparation of the 37th Ordinary Summit of heads of state this weekend. As the new chair of the council, South Africa will, amongst others, convene SADC meetings leading up to and update the 17 member states on implementation of policies as well as represent the region in multinational forums. Amos Pajo reports. Our vision for this year is to provide policy direction and an enabling environment for a program of work that prioritizes the pre- uh, preparations for high-impact cross-border projects that are pragmatic, enhance skills, create 
jobs and boost regional trade and high-value goods. A noble commitment by South Africa through International Relations Minister Maite Nkwana Mashabani to transform the lives of the people of the region for the better. This course is not immune to challenges, including a shortage of funding for the ambitious industrialization plan which was adopted in Swaziland last year. Nkwana Mashabani says it is important that private sector play a critical role in ensuring success of the regional development goals. South Africa has thought it wise that This 37th Ordinary Summit of Heads of States for SADC should have the theme partnering with the private sector in developing industry and regional value chains. The theme picks up on the already identified importance of industrialization for the prosperity of the region and seeks to strengthen the region's capacity to realize industrialization and economic, radical economic transformation through partnership with the private sector. It's not just fashionable, it's the right thing to do. The need for private sector in the region to play a role has also been echoed by outgoing chair of the council, Swaziland. The country's Minister of Economic Development, Prince Langusem Bidlamini, says dependency on global partners to finance investment in regional projects and programs is not sustainable and has taken a downward trend over the years. Minister Lamini says member states must also contribute towards the SADC Regional Development Fund. Given that most member states have signed the agreement of establishing the fund, the process of operationalizing uh, of the SADAC Regional Development Fund is underway. There is need for SADAC member states to commit themselves to ensure that at least the fund takes off to pave way of a concrete process of resource mobilization and consolidation of the other proposed uh, smaller uh, SADAC funds. Executive Secretary of SADC, Dr. Stergomena Lawrence Tex, has meanwhile revealed that only seven member states have signed the agreement. She says the African Development Bank is currently in the process of finalizing requirements to fully operationalize phase one of the fund and urged the remaining member states to sign and ratify the establishment of the fund. Dr. Tex has also commended peace and stability in the region. Our efforts to achieve deeper integration and sustainable development would be meaningless if we fail to safeguard political stability and the peace and security in the region. It is therefore pleasing to state that the region has largely continued to remain peaceful and stable. We have witnessed continued adherence to democratic values and practices by holding regular national democratic elections by member states. And between August 2016 and July 2017, elections were held in Zambia, Seychelles and the Kingdom of Lesotho. May I congratulate the government and people of this member state for the successful and the credible elections and for making our region to shine. South Africa's tenure as chair of the Council of Ministers, as well as that of the region, comes at a time when focus moves from planning to implementation. And failure is not an option as most countries on the continent draw inspiration from Pretoria. I'm Amos Power in Pretoria. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. In headlines, the number of victims of the deadly mudslide in the capital of Sierra Leone, Freetown, has risen to close to 400. The suicide bomber has killed at least 27 people in northeast Nigeria, leaving scores wounded. And Kenyan opposition leader Raila Odinga is expected to unveil his next move today to contest a presidential poll he claims was rigged in favor of President Uhuru Kenyatta. Details at the top of the hour. Thank you, Amanda. Tourism stakeholders are blaming international media houses for portraying Kenya negatively after last week's general election, this following the eruption of violent protests in several parts of the country after the re-election of President Uhuru Kenyatta for a second term. Diana Wanyonyi reports. Addressing the media in Nairobi, Tourism Cabinet Secretary Najib Balala blamed foreign and international media for reporting that Kenya is not peaceful following violent protests after election on the 8th of August. We are disappointed with the international media, the way they portrayed Kenya. Kenya is not burning. Kenya is peaceful. Kenya has moved on after the general elections. There are pockets where there have been some protests, and that is Kibera and mainly Mazare and a few places in Kisumu. The rest of the country, the beach destination is safe, and secured and the people of the coast province have said they don't want protest and they want peace because they suffered in 2007. The people in the nature reserves and the safari circuit, all of them have committed that they don't want protest because it's going to jeopardize the tourism sector. Balala said the guilty media institutions are using all the images and videos to claim that Kenya is burning. We want to urge the media and particularly the international media. It is not fair to portray old footages of 2007 on their screens or to portray footages of other countries and say a reporting from Nairobi and it is being portrayed as if the incident is in Nairobi. We regret that has happened and please we want to show our country is peaceful, our country is safe and we have moved on after the general elections. It is now time to reconcile our people, to rebuild our country, and all of us pulling together in one direction. The months of June, July, and August are Kenya's most attractive season for both domestic and international tourism. The top destinations are on the Kenyan coast with its sandy beaches, historical sites, and good weather. Tourists also like visiting the capital Nairobi and the market town of Naivasha in Nakuru County. Mike Masharia, chief executive of the Kenya Association of Hotel Keepers and Caterers, stressed the important role of political leaders in enhancing peace and tranquility and solve their differences via the law, not violence. We know that uh, some people lost the elections, and this is not just a presidential elections. It's all over. What we are adding is, and particularly to our position leader, the right honorable Raila Odinga, to kindly rise above the self and consider the nation. We also make the same appeal to our president. According to the World Travel and Tourism Council's annual research of May 2017, the total contribution of travel and tourism to Kenya's gross domestic product was 682 billion Kenyan shillings, which is equivalent to 6.7 billion U.S. dollars.
This is expected to rise by 5.9% in 2017. Jimmy Kariuki, chairman of Kenya Tourism Board, elaborates on the factors that contribute to the positive growth in the tourism industry. The aggressive marketing by the private sector as well as the Kenya Tourism Board in our key source markets. The, the very high profile and positive events that have taken place in Kenya in 2016 and 2017. And also the increase in flights to Kenya. The main uh, or the most robust growth in terms of our tourism source markets have come from the emerging markets uh, in Africa, West Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa and also Asia. Uh, China has seen a very strong growth into the country. Domestic market has continued to improve. The launch of the Madaraka Express you know, has uh, really, really boosted the uh, domestic travel to Mombasa. That is the chairman of the Kenya Tourism Board, Jimmy Kariuki, and I am Diana Wanyonyi in Kenya. The Egyptian president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, has arrived in Rwanda for a two-day state visit. The Egyptian ambassador to Rwanda, Namira Negm, says the visit aims at reviving the latter's relationship with sub-Saharan Africa. President al-Sisi landed in Rwanda after visiting Tanzania in a continental tour that will see him visiting Chad and Gabon, respectively. Silvanus Karamera reports from Kigali. President Abdul Fattah el-Sisi arrived in Kigali on Tuesday and was received by Rwanda's President Paul Kagame. He proceeded to the Kigali Genocide Memorial, from where he received a glimpse of what happened in the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. The Egyptian ambassador to Rwanda, Namira Negm, says President Sisi's visit to Kigali aims at reviving several decades of standoff between Egypt and the United Basin countries. She says it's high time countries find mutual and peaceful resolutions on controversial use of the Nile waters. Uh, under present CC, we are trying to bring back the good relations that we had since Nasser's time uh, with all our uh, African neighbors and, of course, specifically the Nile Basin countries. Um, with the, I think the, the uh, outcome of the summit that took place in Entebbe will be discussed with uh, President Kagame, and uh, uh, we will pinpoint the points, as you said, some of the misunderstandings or the controversial points between uh, Egypt and some of the other countries uh, in order to see how we can overcome these things because um, it's all about the political uh, environment among the countries. So we want to cooperate rather than continue having such controversy on the table. President Abdul Fattah el-Sisi landed in Rwanda from Tanzania in a trip that will take him to Chad and Gabon. The Egyptian ambassador to Rwanda, Namir Negim, believes the four respective countries have the power to demystify the current trends in the management and equitable use of the Nile waters. Rwanda is a key player in East Africa and a leader in East African communities. So uh, it is very important to have Rwanda on board uh, in the discussions uh, in a positive way to see how we can work out the elements that there are few elements we can discuss we can see how we can uh, go for it in accordance with international law and rwanda is is a key player in that however investors and cross-border traders say the visit by the egyptian head of state serves as an opportunity for both countries business sectors to flourish to an extra height <laughs> 
hari byo batubwiye babona byaba their investors have already come here and expressed interest in certain sectors, such as in construction by providing building materials and constructing low-cost housing. We have others that have been in the mining sector for some time now, and they are now going to help us to develop it. Egypt is going to help us to develop the industry sector through their extensive experience so that we can develop the Made in Rwanda program. As I saw Kigali, how it is growing regarding business, how the international community in Kigali is increasing in numbers, I decided to uh, invade the restaurant uh, sector uh, and make the first Egyptian and the Mediterranean uh, restaurant in Kigali. Rwanda and Egypt have for the past few years been cooperating in businesses. Rwanda's trade exports to Egypt in 2015 stood at 30 million US dollars, whereas Egypt's exports to Rwanda amounted to 64 million US dollars. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Good news for our listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-447-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. The medical agency Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, is concerned by an outbreak of hepatitis E in Nigeria's Borno state in the Nagla camp, where four pregnant women have died in the past two months. The camp for internally displaced persons, or IDPs, currently hosts about 45,000 people who have fled violence from Boko Haram. MSF says the situation in Nagla camp is very worrying, especially with the onset of the rainy season, a recipe for bacteria and disease. For more on this, here's MSF Southern Africa Head of Field Recruitment, James Kambaki. 
I think the situation is quite uh, severe. They have declared an outbreak. There is uh, already more than 400 cases of hepatitis E that has been reported in the past two months. And there is about 170 patients uh, at the hospital who have been treated uh, because of hepatitis E. And uh, I think there is also um, uh, four deaths as a result of hepatitis E, mostly from uh, pregnant women. So that is uh, the severe magnitude of the of the situation at the moment. The cause of this outbreak, of course, it's brought about by poor sanitation, and uh, this has been exacerbated by the floods that have taken uh, heavy rains and then there's been floods. And with that, uh, of course, uh, the latrines have been uh, overflown, and you know people will always evacuate out of out of latrines, and this has gone into uh, people's houses and. Uh, the situation is just messy, and we, we know for uh, that uh, the transmission of this hepatitis E is mainly is from the contamination of water. So this is the situation at the moment. Uh, it's quite dire. How is MSF responding, and how is that going? Um, we have a hospital uh, in that uh, camp uh, that we actually respond in treating the, the most severe, as I said, 170 patients uh, at our hospital, and then we also have arranged. Uh, quite a big health promotion uh, programs that goes into the community, uh, trying to educate the community about how they could actually like prevent the disease. We are distributing soap and chlorine that could actually purify the water before they drink it. So it, it's a massive uh, intervention that we are doing at the moment. And just how big is the population in this camp? The camp has about 45,000 uh, internally displaced people, and, uh, and and I think the this number always keeps increasing because they cross also some people cross from the neighboring countries of Cameroon to come into that camp. So that's the number that we have as we speak. And now finally, just to conclude, James, what more needs to be done to be able to contain this outbreak? I think a lot of health education needs to be done. First of all, the, the context, you know, the Boko Haram conflict is still mm. there. So that makes it even much more difficult because of security situation to intervene. The terrain is much more more difficult now because getting to, to different places is, is difficult. It's raining, you need four by fours and things, things like that. So I think there is need for more organizations to get into to support what MSF done in Bono State. That was James Kambaki, head of field recruitment at Doctors Without Borders, Southern Africa, on the line speaking to Zikonamiso. It's 7.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Good morning. Mining Division Nonmin CEO Ben Magara has appealed to all mining stakeholders to ensure that what happened in 2012 in Marigana does not repeat itself. On this day, five years ago, the 34 mine workers employed by the world's biggest platinum producer Lonmin were killed by the police at the infamous Sokopi near Wanderkop in South Africa's northwest province. The miners had embarked on an unprotected wage strike. Magara says what happened in 2012 should be a lesson that miners' labor disputes should be taken seriously. We surely hope that all stakeholders can take it from here and grow it into something 
that we can all be proud of one day and remember our, our 44 colleagues that indeed this will never happen again, but they gave us, their blood has given us a life even bigger and better than we ever imagined before that. Aselo Mittal South Africa is considering job cuts and restructuring to save costs in a challenging global steel market and recession at home. Job cuts are a thorny issue in South Africa where unemployment is at a 14-year high and key sectors of the recession-hit economy such as trade and manufacturing are struggling. Aselo Mittal says it would explore several initiatives including cost-saving measures, assessing the profitability of various product lines and restructuring in the next six months. Stanbeck Bank Uganda, a unit of South Africa's Standard Bank Group, says its pretext profit dropped 11% in the first half of the year from the same period. In 2016, squeezed by low interest earnings. The bank earned 36 million US dollars in the six months period. Chief Executive Patrick Muehere says the lower profit was largely brought about by a lower interest rate environment. But he said the second half held better prospects as individual and commercial borrowers take advantage of much lower rates. Kenyan banks are optimistic about an upturn in borrowing before the year ends, re- reversing the slowdown in credit growth in the country. According to a new survey by the Central Bank of Kenya, 10 small lenders believe Kenyans will borrow more, while nine of their counterparts expect the levels of credit to remain the same. Only one small lender credit believes the slump will go on further this year. Tunisia's National Statistics Institute says Tunisia's economy grew by 1.9% in the first half of 2007, up from 1% in the same period last year. The institute says that the improvement in growth was due to better performance in the agricultural services sectors. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.31 in South Africa, it's at 10.15 in Botswana, and at 8.96 in Zambia. 0.77 to the British pound, 0.85 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,272, platinum at $959 an ounce. Brent crude $51.05 a barrel. It's Channel Africa. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, it's football news. Bafana Bafana's third string squad preparing for the Chan final round and second leg qualifier against Zambia indoor this coming weekend has been hit by 10 withdrawals. Head coach Jad Baxter had expected about 8 withdrawals as the Absa Premiership and National First Division teams are kicking off the 2017-2018 season this coming weekend. Currently, there's only 15 players in camp and assistant coach Tabu Sinong says good news is that Kaiser Chiefs has availed three more players, Khozo Moleko, Subusiso Kumalo and Siangezana, to the team. At the moment, we have 15 players at the moment. Those are the players that will train with us in our afternoon session at 3.30 and uh, yeah, we've had 10 withdrawals. Uh, 
Um, of course, uh, the main reasons being they have to honor their fixtures because uh, the PSL fixtures uh, matches are starting this coming weekend. And of course, the NFD uh, fixtures are also starting this coming weekend. So these are some of the challenges that we have faced with as a technical team. And uh, we had no choice but to continue and uh, begin making replacements. So we've already submitted names to clubs and uh, we're hoping that by tonight, tomorrow morning, few players will report to camp so that we can have a, a very good balanced number that will help us to prepare for a tough match on Saturday. This now brings the number of Chiefs players in the squad to six, surely highlighting the importance of relations between the coaches. Sinon confirmed that they will leave for Zambia on Thursday and hold two training sessions there. We have our last two sessions in South Africa this afternoon and tomorrow afternoon. We have our other two sessions, uh, final two sessions will be conducted in Zambia on Thursday late afternoon and of course on Friday, uh, pre-match training and um, we believe that these four sessions will, 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 will give us the needed time to make sure that we prepare a very good 11 mm-hmm. that will start on Saturday and we know it won't be easy but uh, we still believe that we have a chance, uh, we still believe uh, that we can score a goal. And then we still believe that uh, we, can, we can really create problems for Zambia because we trust uh, the quality of the players that we have in the squad. Uh, the atmosphere is very good. The mood is good. They are working very hard. And then uh, let's see what happens, you know, in the coming weekend. And, um, but still, development will be the winner because a lot of young lads are being introduced. And it will be good for Team South Africa to qualify for a tournament that will be played next year, January. Kenya is to launch a bid to host the Athletics World Championships in 2023 after successfully staging two other international competitions in the last 10 years. No African nation has ever staged a sports flagship event, but Kenyan sports minister Hassan Wario says Kenya has shown its capability when it's brought together athletes from 130 countries to compete in the IAAF World Under-18 Championship in Nairobi in July. Wario echoed the recent call by Confederation of African Athletics, CAA President Ahmad Kalakaba Malbon, for Africa to be awarded the World Championships by 2025. Malbourne says six African countries, including Kenya, are capable of hosting the event. The Qatari capital of Doha is set to host the 2019 IAAF World Championships before Eugene, Oregon in the U.S. staging the 2021 edition. A South African University women coach Tina Singo Mbuli says their main ambition is to reach the knockout stages of the World Student Championships in Taipei in Taiwan. A 29th edition of the Games will kick off from the 19th until the 31st of August. The team finished in the lowly 14th position at the previous Games in South Korea two years ago, but we'll be hoping to improve on that this time around. The main ambition is to improve on that. And just before we left, our last team talked at home. Because sometimes when you go to tournament, it's always the coach who has a goal, not the players. And then this time we asked them, what is your goal? And they said they want to go all out. All out is in playing quarter, quarter, semi. And once we reach the knockout stages, it, it becomes anyone, anyone's lucky. Anyone who's lucky then goes through. But our goal is to go to next round. And then from next round, we take it game by game, game by game, because it's knockout. 
and the team arrived in the hot Taipei on Monday away from the cold winter conditions back home. And the temperatures in Taiwanese capital are averaging 35 degrees in the afternoon. That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Mtande by Musa featuring Robbie Malinga takes us to the top of the hour. Oh, 